Judges chapter 3. And I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. We'll read down to verse number 4. The Bible says, Now these are the nations which the Lord left to prove Israel by them, even as many of Israel as had not known all the wars of Canaan, only that the generations of the children of Israel might know to teach them war, at the least such as before knew nothing thereof. Namely, five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites that dwelt in Mount Lebanon from Mount Bel-Hermon unto the entering in of Hamath. And they were to prove Israel by them to know whether they would hearken unto the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. Let's pray. Lord, we love you tonight. Thank you for letting us be here. What a blessing. My heart has already been cheered and encouraged and strengthened just by being in this place and being around your people. Lord, we've come tonight, and though our hearts have joy in them, they do have a heaviness too, because we brought all these burdens and all these matters that are beyond us, that are bigger than us, things that we must have your hand and your power and your wisdom in. So I pray that you would meet with these requests. Lord, do it in such a way that would bring you glory. I pray especially for those, Lord, that are sick, some in the hospital, some at home that are ailing. Lord, I just pray that you'd minister healing to them that you'd touch them and raise them up. Lord, do it do it through medicine or do it through miracle, but do it in such a way that bring you glory and that we'd be mindful to give you praise for what you've done. Now, Lord, there's not a single one of us that's here by accident. We're here because you have determined us to be here. And, Lord, you've got a plan and a purpose. So I pray that you'd take your word tonight, minister it to our hearts. Lord, help us to be receptive to the truth of your word. Lord, it's true. It's perfect. It's pure. Your word has never lied to us. Your word has never failed us. Your word has never let us down. And Lord, you've never let us down. You've never failed us and you've never lied to us. So help us push everything away and to just set our hearts upon you tonight and to allow you to do a work in us. Lord, we love you and we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. I want to draw your attention to our text tonight here in Judges Chapter number three, if you are a student of the Bible, you know, probably broadly speaking, how the books of uh, of of Deuteronomy and of Joshua and of Judges sort of fit together. The book of Deuteronomy is, of course, the retelling of the law, but it also contains some history. And when we close the book of Deuteronomy, we find the children of Israel on the precipice of entering into Canaan. They have for 40 years wandered in the wilderness because of their unbelief. But now God is getting ready to lead them in to the promised land, the land of Canaan. I'd remind you that the land of Canaan is not a picture of heaven, but it is a picture of the life that God desires for us to live. There's giants in Canaan, there's problems in Canaan, there's disobedience in Canaan and mistakes in Canaan. Now, I'm happy to report tonight that none of those things are going to be in heaven, amen? But it is a picture of the life that God desires for them to live. Moses, because of his sin, will not be permitted to lead them into Canaan, but rather it would be under Joshua's hand that they would be led into the promised land. And so the book of Deuteronomy closes with the death of Moses and sort of the passing of the mantle onto Joshua as the leader of the children of Israel. The way the Bible describes it is as God was with Moses, so he was also with Joshua. And the book of Joshua is occupied largely with what the Bible here calls the wars of Canaan. 
Times when they were endeavoring to conquer the land. Times when God was giving them great victories. And and the book of Joshua, one of the reasons I love it, it's not an unmitigated record of man's victories, but rather it is a perfect record of God's victories. Because you find man making mistakes, but you don't find God ever failing. You don't find God ever... I mean, listen, there weren't no battles that God lost. They lost some battles, but God never lost any battles. Can I remind you in your life and in mine, we ought not try to export our problems up towards heaven. We have problems in our life. It isn't that God has done that to us. It's we've, we've done it to ourselves. We've allowed it happen in our own lives. And God's never failed me. He's never failed you. We won't see our lives become what they need to be until we're willing to be transparent and honest about that reality. And so all through the book of Joshua, we find them fighting wars. Some peoples were conquered. Some were left unconquered. And the book of Judges opens in many ways like the book of Joshua does. It opens with the death of their leader. Joshua dies, and after Joshua dies, the Bible describes how that the children of Israel, they scattered to their tents, and they began to live. Now, during this period of time, not all of their enemies were defeated. And in fact, in our text, we find out that God had distinctly left some enemies there. Now, you say, well, preacher, what does this have to do with my life? But when I look at this passage, I'm reminded in some ways of the situation that you and I are in as New Testament believers tonight. For instance, turn back to Judges chapter 1 with me. Let's read four verses there. Unless the Lord changes my direction, this will be the only verses we'll read as our text and then these four verses. But I want you to notice how the Bible describes the initial campaigns of the children of Israel after the death of Joshua. It says, now after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, who shall go up for us against the Canaanite first to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have delivered the land into his hand. And Judah said unto Simeon, his brother, come up with me into my lot that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with thee into thy lot. So Simeon went with him. And Judah went up, and the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. And they slew of them in Bezek ten thousand men. Now, immediately, just in reading that short synopsis of this first campaign, there are some important truths that situate this passage in a very similar place as your life and mine. For instance, notice, number one, that victory was divinely delivered to them. Verse 4 says it very clearly. It says, the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. You know, can I just give a word of testimony tonight in saying this? Hey, I've tasted defeat, but thank God I've been able to taste some victories too. I mean, listen, we, we can sit around and we sort of live in this world today where we're all trying to out-mope each other and out-complain each other and out-poor-mouth each other. But i just got to be honest with you. I mean, I guess if I looked for things to complain about, I'd find them like anybody would. But God's been good to me. God has God has helped me. God has strengthened me. God has been faithful to me. And in my life, I've been able, I've tasted defeat, and it's bitter, and I don't like it. But thank God, I've been able to taste some victories, too. And every one of those victories that I've enjoyed has been divinely delivered. Certainly, there have been times in my life when I've tasted defeat, and that's always been when I've sought to fight the battles of my life. But when I've been willing to trust the Lord, when I've been willing to follow Him, you know, we're not trusting Him if we're not obeying Him. We can talk about faith and we can talk about trust all we want, but we're not really trusting Him if we're not obeying Him. 
In times of disobedience in my life, when I sought to take things into my own hands and to win my own victories, surely every time without fail I tasted defeat. But I can report to you tonight that there's victory if you'll live in Christ. You can enjoy victory. Victory was divinely delivered. But then I notice verse number two. I like this there in chapter one. The Lord said, Judah uh, shall go up. Behold, I have delivered the land into his hand. It reminds me that victory was divinely determined. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, they had tasted victory. Thank God. But they were also promised victory by the promise of the Lord. Now, I understand that even to this day, Israel has never occupied the full parcel that God had appointed to them. But can I remind you, this world ain't quit spinning, and the clocks ain't quit running, and God's calendar is not finished yet. And sure enough, God is a keeper of his word, and he one day will situate Israel back in the land with all the land that he promised them. In other words, we could say this, that before the first shot was ever fired, God had already promised absolute victory. And man, I'm thankful tonight that God's promised victory for our lives. Now, you may be sitting there in defeat tonight, discouraged, disheartened, but I got news for you. Listen, there's coming a day. Heaven's going to heal every bit of this. We're not on the losing side. If you're saved by God's grace, you're not on the losing side. The devil will tell you that you are, and the world will tell you that you are. Listen, lift up your head and gain some encouragement that we're not on the losing side. Man, we're on the winning side of this thing. I'm glad to report I'm not sitting around nervous trying to figure out how things are going to turn out. I know how they're going to turn out because according to the promise of God, we are on the victorious side. See, that victory was divinely delivered and divinely determined. But in our text here in chapter 3, we learn another truth. The Bible says this. Now, these are the nations which the Lord left to prove Israel by them even as many of Israel as had not known all the wars of Canaan. Here is a reality of life. I don't think I'm telling you anything you don't already know, but I would just add to those first two points. Victory was divinely delivered. They had tasted victory, and victory was divinely determined. They were promised victory. But here in our text, I see this, that victory was also divinely delayed in their life. God said, I'm not going to give you all the victory in a moment. But rather, it's going to take some time for victory to take place. In other places, the Bible described how that had he allowed them to have total victory just in a short duration of time, it wouldn't have been long. They couldn't have settled the land. It would have been overrun by predators and and, and by weeds and by thorns and brambles. And he says, I'll not deliver the land to you all at once. Here in our text, we learn this, that they had battles that they had to fight. And, you know, God had the ability to solve every one of their problems in a moment. But in his divine wisdom, he said, I'm not going to. I'm going to leave some enemies for you to have to fight that I might develop you in your devotion to me. Notice a couple things about it. Notice, number one, these uh, enemies, they were left in place. Notice the language very carefully in verse 1. These are the nations which the Lord left. In other words, all the rest of them that were gone were gone because he had scooped them up. They were all gone because he had cast them down. But the ones that were left there were not left there because they had overcome him. They were left in place by the divine hand of God. 
Can I tell you, when we're living for the Lord and walking in His will, we can rest assured, and this is the peace of mind and peace of God that we enjoy, we can rest assured that whatever we face, man, it's not its not just there because there, we got bad luck. It's not just there because the world's a mean and cold place. It's there because a perfect providential God has permitted it to be there. Not because He hates us. Hey, we can look at Calvary and learn He don't hate us, that He loves us. But we can trust that it is there by divine purpose. They were left in place, but then I would say, number two, they were left for a purpose. God didn't just leave them there upon a whim. And I'm glad we don't have a God that operates on whims. You ever known anybody and just thought to yourself, you could never guess what they were about to do at any given moment? Well, you ought to pastor for a little while and you'd meet some people like that. Amen? You ever met somebody that was totally unpredictable? You didn't know what to expect out of them. They were apt to do anything unstable and balanced unpredictable. I'm glad we don't serve a God like that. Listen, I'm glad there's no shadow of turning in him. I'm glad he don't just wake up on the wrong side of heaven and decide he's going to throw thunderbolts at us. I'm glad we have a God that is faithful, consistent, that changeth not. And he didn't just do this based on a whim. The Bible says he had a reason to prove Israel by. We'll say a word about that in a moment. But can I just say this before we move on? These these enemies were left for a purpose. They weren't there for no reason. They were there for a very specific and meaningful and wise reason. And the battles that you and I face in life, they're not there for no reason. God has a plan in them. God has a purpose in them. We sometimes live our life just like we're sort of stumbling our way through some slalom of bad events. And we miss the providential hand of God. We sort of treat it like we're getting shoved back and forth between two opposing forces, like some cosmic pinball that's being shot around the machine of the universe and its misfortune. But can I tell you, if you're a child of God, that is not your life. That is not your destiny. That is not your path. God is very carefully curating the steps of your life. And he has a reason behind everything that he does. I want to preach to you on this thought. We could say this. They had, they had won some battles. <laughs> They were promised they would win the battles. But here we see lingering battles in their life. You know, there's times I can look back in my life and there were battles that came and went. I can look back at some of the darkest times in my life and remember feeling like I would never come out of them. Do you remember that? You remember going through things and not seeing a way out, not seeing any hope or any help. I mean, it, there wasn't just no light at the end of the tunnel. Somebody had done bricked up the, the, the opening. Amen. And. And you thought there's no hope and there's no way out of this. And now here you sit on the other side of that calamity and you can praise God for his faithfulness. At that time, you said, I'll never get through it. But now today you can praise him for his faithfulness. There are some battles that pass. But then can I say this? It seems like there are some battles in life that are just lingering battles. They don't come and pass. Instead, they ebb and flow. Seems like they flare up. And then it seems like they tone down. Sometimes there's things that we face that I'm going to be honest with you. You and I may fight battles that we may never get rest from till we till we get to heaven. But you know that just as those seasonal battles in your life had a purpose, so likewise those persistent, those lingering battles have a purpose. Paul had a lingering battle in his life. He described it in Second Corinthians. He described this thing that he had prayed for three times for God 
to take away from him a thorn in the flesh, a messenger sent from Satan to buffet him. And three times he prayed and asked God to take that thing away. You know, I don't know about you, but I don't think Paul was a quitter in prayer. I think when he prayed and when he asked God to take it away, I think the reason he quit praying, he got some peace about it, maybe even got an ounce of relief about it, and he thought he had grace enough to face it, only to find out later as that thing reared its head once again in his life that he could not overcome. This in Paul's life was a lingering battle. In that very most dire of battles that he faced, he said he found grace and he found strength and he found glory in the Lord. And I'm just here to tell you, listen, the lingering battles in your life, you may never whip all of them, but they are not a single one without purpose and design. Don't you notice what God's purpose was for Israel in these lingering battles? There's only three of them in our text. I don't really have any sub points to speak of, but I just want you to notice them and let the Lord encourage your heart tonight. Say, preacher, why is God making me face this thing over and over and over again? I've prayed. I've asked God to take it away and he's not took it away. What is God doing in my life? Well, notice what God was doing in Israel's life. Look at verse number one. The Bible says this, now these are the nations which the Lord left. Why did he do that? Here's why. To prove Israel by them, even as many of Israel as had not known all the wars of Canaan. So preacher, why is God allowing these perpetual, persistent, lingering battles in my life? Well, in Israel's life, he left them there to test them. The Bible uses the word prove here in verse number one. It's the idea of a smelter or a metal worker that is taking uh, precious metals and putting them into the fire that they might be able both to purify them and to prove them, both to, to cleanse them and also to reveal them. And they would do this so they could learn what the purity and character and integrity of the metal that they were working with was. Here's a question I've got for you. Did God have to prove Israel for his own sake? No, of course not. God is omniscient. God knows all things. I got news for you. God knows more about you than you know about you. God knows what you'll do and what you won't do. Uh, you ever do this thing in your mind where you just imagine just sort of like, like imaginary scenarios and situations, thinking, what what I'd do in that situation? You know, there's no eventuality that God does not already know exactly, perfectly, and exhaustively how you would respond in that situation. God didn't have to prove Israel to find out anything for himself. Here's what he did need to do. He needed Israel to know who and what they were. Can I tell you something? It's important that we know who and what we are. There's things you're capable of that you don't think you're capable of, both good and bad. There's things that you will do, both good and bad, that you would have never thought possible for you. And I would just have you notice two things here. Number one, I would have you notice that they did not automatically know themselves. Something had to enter into the sphere of their experience that might test them and prove what they really were. You know, hard times prove us. It brings to the surface pressure, exposes the cracks in our life and shows us for who and for what we really are. We've seen society do this on a broad scale. We learned some things. That was one of the most startling things over the past uh, five, six years, both not only in the societal scene with medical issues and things like that, but in the political scene. I mean, there's an America I thought existed because I've been raised and taught that it existed. 
And then the past few years has shown me that that America didn't exist. And there was a very different America that in its place did exist. And it showed the stress fractures in our society and in our country. A lot of churches were tested over the last few years. We found out where the stress fractures were. And a lot of marriages were tested. We found where the stress fractures were. A lot of friendships were tested. And we found where the stress fractures were. Because if you're not careful, you'll operate under the delusion of a false perception of who and what you are. The flesh always paints a better picture of you than you really are. It's like in mirrors at the department store. Amen. The funny ones. I saw a picture of myself the other day. I don't know. I, I just about cussed that person's camera. Amen. We we have a better perspective of ourselves than what is reality most of the time. We don't know ourselves automatically. But then notice this. It took the wars around them to bring to the surface who and what they really were. In other words, it's the difficult times. It's the It's the tense times. Listen, none of us likes problems. None of us likes trouble. I don't want you to go through trouble. I don't want me to go through trouble. And I don't want us to go through trouble together. I love you and want us to hang out. But let's not do it down at the hospital or the funeral home. We can help it. But can I tell you the reality of your life? It's going to take some hard times to show you who and what you really are. When things get difficult, we begin to make compromises. When things get difficult, we begin to learn what our value system really is. There's things we say are precious to us. But when we're made to choose, we find out what's really precious to us. We're rapidly approaching a time in our society where Christians are going to likewise go through a proving ground. We're going to find out. You know, people have been saying for a lot of years, well, I'll go to church even if they'd throw me in jail for it. We're going to find out. Well, I'd, I'd witness people even if it was against the law. We're going to find out. Listen, I, I'd raise my kids for the Lord even if, I, even if they threatened to take them away or threatened to throw me in jail. We're going to find out. Because the reality is we're, we're, we're headed into the fire. And I'm not doom and gloom. Hey, listen, man, I already know he walks with us through the flames. But I'm just telling you that the hard times in your life, one of the things that you can draw from them, one of the things, the benefits that God gives you through it, one of what God is trying to develop in you is a right appreciation of who and what you really are. He's not doing that for him. He knows what you are, but he wants you to know your frailty, your weakness, your flaws, the chinks in your armor, the mistakes that you're apt to make, because only when you see the frailty of who you are will you go to him for the strength of who he is. We don't go to him for strength when we think we got strength. But the moment we realize we are without strength, that's when we seek him. So the first reason was to test them. But then notice verse number two. The Bible says this, only that the generations of the children of Israel might know to teach them war at the least such as before knew nothing thereof. God had given them rest for a season. And it had cultivated in them a generation of young people that had no concept of what it cost to get them there. And here's what he's trying to do. He's trying to teach them some things. You know, every problem you and I face is, is a classroom. Every trial we go through is a classroom. Everything we face, God's teaching us things about ourselves and about him and about life. Around us, and he needed them to learn some things that they could only learn through the warfare that they experienced. Two things. I told you I didn't have any sub points, but you ought to know better than believe that. 
Notice the first thing he sought to teach them was the reality of war. We've been blessed in our country. We have lived with a perpetual form of war. I don't really think there'll ever be a time in my lifetime, maybe not from here going forward until Christ sits on the throne, that we won't be at war. It's become a way of life, you understand. There is a whole, and listen, I'm no hippy-dippy dove. I mean, I listen, we, we're going to have to fight for freedom and liberty and things like that. And I'm well aware of that. And I'm awful appreciative for those that have fought and laid down their lives so that we could enjoy the freedom that we have. But you understand, hey, listen, old, old Ike said it when he was leaving office. This thing of war has become an industry. It's become an industry. Multi-billions of dollars gets funneled into it. You say, preacher, give me some proof. Well, I'll give you a little proof. After 20 years in Afghanistan, we left six months later to get mired in, in, uh, in Ukraine. Whether you agree with it or don't agree with it, I don't care. But it's apparent to me that the elite class of our country is drunk on war. And they're going to continue that no matter what happens on the global scale. You say, preacher, we might win that war. Ain't nobody going to win that war. But as soon as we're out of that one, all of a sudden they'll find some other part of the world that has to be rescued. And I'm just telling you, it ain't got nothing to do. You say, but but freedom, preacher, but democracy, preacher. You think they care about freedom and democracy? I care about freedom and democracy. You care about freedom and democracy. They don't care about that. They're uninterested in That's not what it's about to them. There's all sorts of places all over the globe that if they were going to go in and nation build, that they'd have an easier time of doing it than the places they've chosen. And you say, well, preacher, well, mm, I, got a, I got a sermon to try to preach here. I don't know that we'll ever have a time that we're not fighting wars again. Uh, but the way we fight wars today is a little different than how we used to. There's this perpetual familiarity with the concept of war. But most, not all, I know people personally that have seen the heat of battle. But a great many people in our armed services, they never face that and they never have to see the reality of that. And seeing war the way these generations would have to come to see war was an entirely different thing. And I don't say that to denigrate. I, my daddy was in the military and didn't see no action. Uh, I don't say that to denigrate anybody whose role is supportive in that sense, but just merely to say there are some things, if you've never seen that, that you can't possibly know. And here Joshua, or here the children of Israel, they've raised a whole generation of young people that they have no concept that it costs something to have what they have. Let me tell you that in your Christian life, if we're not careful in this Soft cultural Christianity, uh, this uh, Christianity that is approved by all authorities, this Christianity that has been tamed and domesticated to fit neatly within the pantheon of secularism of the society around us. We'll get to forgetting that it costs something to live for Christ. It costs something to live for him. Sometimes it'll cost you some friends, some relationships, a job. And you can tell it's that way because often when when you're talking to people and you suggest to them that they might have to choose Christ above something else in their life, they look scandalized. And they look at you like, how dare you say that? And you don't know and you're not in my place. Whoever told you living for Christ wouldn't cost you something. See, they had to learn the reality of war. But then number two, they had to learn the ability of war. There were more battles to fight. And they had to teach these people how to fight battles. Can I say in your life, part of the reason that God gives lingering battles is so that our skill set stays sharp. If we're not careful, man, we enjoy the blessings of God, we'll get to forgetting what it takes. And we'll get to 
that same place of those people I described a moment ago where when God comes and gives us a problem with no immediate apparent solution, we'll get upset and bowed up on God and all twisted up and God, how dare you and why would you? But you know, this thing's always been by faith. We walk by faith and not by sight. We've grown so comfortable that when somebody suggests we walk by faith, it bothers us. What should really bother us is that we have so familiarized ourselves with a pseudo-Christianity that requires no faith. The fact is that he had to teach them how to walk by faith, how to trust him, how to charge into the battle lines, how to blow the trumpet, how to carry the sword, how to carry the standard. And for our lives, you say, preacher, why is God making me face this all the time? He, Listen, he's letting you fight this lingering battle for the larger battle that's coming down the pipe so that you'll be ready when the time comes. I would say he allowed this to test them and to teach them. But look at verse 4, and I'll mention this and be done tonight. I don't like the way I said this, but I said it this way because alliteration, whatever. Verse 4 says this. They were to prove Israel by them to know whether they would hearken unto the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. Let me say it this way to tame them. What I mean by that is to tighten their lives. He, They had to understand that they couldn't walk in their own strength and enjoy victory. And so he had to allow them the constant pressure of the battles they were facing so that they would recognize that their life and the success of it, it, it raised and it, and it fell based upon their willingness to adhere to the truth of God's word. He wanted them to learn how much they valued the commandments of the Lord But he also wanted them to learn that victory lies within the commandments of the Lord. That only if they were willing to obey the Lord and walk with him would they enjoy the victory that they wanted. And hey, everybody wants victory. If you don't want none, let me have yours. Amen. I'll take a double helping. I'll take every victory I can get. But can I tell you, victory only comes as we walk with the Lord and in obedience to him. He knew whether they would hearken unto the commandments of the Lord. He wanted them to know whether they would hearken unto the commandments of the Lord. Two things that I would say about this. One, I would say this, that it was a way of obedience. It was an obedient way. And in your life, you're going to have to walk in obedience to God to enjoy victory. It's going to be the the, the obedient path that's going to see the victories in your life. We can't walk in disobedience and expect God to bless. All through the Old Testament, and by the way, they they had just learned in the days of Joshua through the sad, tragic experience of Ai and of Achan and the children of Israel, that if they had sin in the camp, God would leave them standing alone on the battlefield and they would suffer the casualties of their disobedience. I've suffered a lot of casualties of my disobedience in my life. And I have learned this, and I don't say I always adhere to it because I'm flesh like you are, but I've learned this, man, I'm nothing without the Lord. I need Him. It was the obedient path. But then notice this, it was the old path. He says this, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. Now that may not mean much to you and I, but to them, when they heard that, they would have been reminded of all the battles God had won all the way from Egypt through the wilderness to that present day. By following the the commandments of God, they had been spared the judgment of the death angel passing over them. By obeying the commandments of God, 
they had passed through the Red Sea on dry land. By obeying the commandments of God, they had seen the armies of Pharaoh destroyed. By obeying the commandments of God, they had seen Sihon and Og, two great kings of the wilderness, destroyed. By obeying the commandment of God, they had seen God give Joshua victory after victory. By obeying God, they had seen the walls of Jericho fall. By obeying God, they had seen the sun stop in its course until they were destroyed on that day by the hands of Joshua. I'm saying this. This ain't a new thing I'm preaching to you. It's an old path. And I'll tell you this. You say, preacher, God can't change my life and he can't give me victory and he can't work in my life. Well, boy, you'd, you'd sure be a stark exception because there's a long record of God doing it. It's done it in my life. I mean, you know, you hear everybody amen and they ain't just doing that because they're bored. I mean, they are bored, but that ain't why they're doing it. Amen. They're doing it because they're testifying of it. They're saying, yeah, that's true for me. I mean, if you knew the stories behind those amens, if you knew the deathbeds that had been got up from, if you knew the the financial ruin that had been reversed, if you knew the marriages that had been pieced back together, if you knew the children that had been snatched from the flames of hell, when they say amen, they ain't just saying amen. They're telling a whole story of what God has done in their life. You say, preacher, why would God leave these battles in my life? Well, for a few reasons. One, he wants to test you, to prove you. Not because he needs to know, because you need to know. He's not sitting up bored wondering uh, what you're made of. He knows what you're made of, but he needs you to know. He's doing it to teach you, because we need to know how to trust him. And we need to understand that it is the normal course of the Christian experience to have to trust him. And he's doing it to tame you or to tighten your life. He's doing it. To cultivate in you an obedience to God's word. Because the truth is, when we wander from his word. Hey, listen, the psalmist said it this way. That before he was afflicted, he strayed from the Lord. He went astray. But after he was afflicted, he kept close to God's word. Preacher, I don't want these battles. I don't want them for you. I don't want mine. But I've learned this, that a perfect God could take them away. But to do so would be a disservice to us. Because he knows what's best for us. Preacher, what can I do? Well, you can you can rejoice and recline in the Lord tonight. You can rest in him. You can rest easy knowing he You say, preacher. I don't know if I can fight these battles forever. You ain't going to have to fight them forever. And I'll tell you this one step inside of heaven and this this life's going to go from looking about this big to looking about this big. But in the meantime, here's what you can do. You can trust him day by day and ask God to grow you these lingering battles. Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play. I want to give you an opportunity to meet with the Lord tonight. I don't know what he's dealing with you about. If you're like most people, you probably have your share of lingering battles. I do in my life. Things that I wish God would take away. I've prayed for him to take them away. He's not in his wisdom and in his love. And I'm having to learn how to trust him with those matters. If that's you tonight, why don't you meet him here at the altar And just commit that thing to his care. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in his name.